here at the church. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark through Easter season. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, maybe this is the first time you've been in church in a long time. We have some available on the back table. They look like this. And uh, we're going to be on page 793. We have been walking through uh, the Gospel of Mark for quite some time, but today we are arriving at sort of a peak in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The Gospel of Mark is split into two halves. And this is the hinge. This is the turn from one side to the other as we sort of arrive at this peak where we look back on everything Mark's been communicating. And the great thing about if you're new to the church or new to exploring Jesus is this. If you want to know who Jesus is, this is an absolutely perfect passage. Even if you've heard about Jesus for years and years and years, maybe you've been in church every Palm Sunday for your entire life, this A passage, I think, helps us see who Jesus really is in a new way. So uh, I want to look at Mark chapter 8. And in light of the text this morning, would you do something? Would you stand with me as we read God's word? Mark chapter 8. You'll see why it's appropriate in a minute. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. This is God's word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is God's word. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. You may take a seat. Well, the question today, uh, the main point today is in the form of a question, and it's the question Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? This is the center of the Gospel of Mark, and really not just the center of this book, but the center of life. Everything in life hinges on your answer to this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? We're going to look at this in three sections today. The first section is what the world says about Jesus. What does the world say about Jesus? Who does the world say he is? Now, first, Mark's opening line here does seem like a random, unnecessary geographical note. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I don't think this is a note. Mark uh, does not waste words. Mark is a fast, punchy, uh, action-oriented gospel. He doesn't include random, unnecessary information. So what's the point of this? Well, he's, he's contrasting what Peter is going to say with the, the area that Jesus is in. Now, this is an area named for two people. For F- The Philippi part is Herod Philip, the provincial ruler of the area. So he was the guy that sort of lo- was the uh, local ruler. And he was significant. He was very significant in the first century. A uh, num- number of things he did lasted for a long time. He's a significant figure in Judean and Jewish history. And also, wisely, he knew he wasn't the 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 
apex ruler of the ancient world. That was Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, the most powerful ruler of the ancient world, probably the most powerful ruler up until that time, whose empire stretched all the way from from Judea all the way out to, I think this is the era where they uh, made inroads into Great Britain, through Spain, everywhere in the Mediterranean, uh, bore the seal of Caesar. So Mark is setting up a contrast. Jesus, with his 12 disciples, a wandering, uh, sometimes penniless Jewish teacher, is on the road surveying a number of villages named for these great rulers, Herod, Caesar. And it would seem like Jesus is this small, relatively uninfluential, maybe big in his area, but not big in terms of the world stage. And this is what the world thinks of Jesus. Right? Jesus is too small to make a huge difference in the world. Maybe Jesus is big and important in his own way to his own people, but when it comes to the great things of the world, he is too small, too impotent to mean a whole lot. He's like an American band that nobody knows here but is huge in Japan. Right? There are these, these bands that somehow have caught on to one part of the world, and they go there and tour, and everyone loves them, and then they come back, and nobody knows who they are, right? This is sort of what Jesus seems to be in terms of the world. And this is what our culture more and more thinks about Jesus. Jesus is shrinking in importance and influence in American life. He is, at best, good at providing religious comfort to some of the people in America. But notice what this says in the context of Mark's gospel and and much more in our day. This would be written a number of years after these events and the gospel of Mark is in itself drawing a contrast between Jesus and these two rulers. It'd be likely that by the time that, that Mark's readers were actually reading the gospel, Herod Philip was gone. Probably Tiberius Caesar, depending on when you date the gospel, Tiberius Caesar is gone or on his way out. And yet Jesus' movement is bulldozing its way through the ancient world. For all of his political maneuvering, Herod Philip could not outmaneuver cancer. For all of his power and unmatched resources, this Caesar may well have been poisoned by his wife who didn't like him. And yet Jesus' empire in the first century only continues to expand. And we we have the benefit of looking back 2,000 years since then, right? Jesus' effect on the world is undeniable. He restarted the clock we use to keep time in the ancient world. His influence at going from a backwoods carpenter from to, to now being worshipped and acknowledged by people, not just in Israel, not just in neighboring lands, not just in the ancient world, but now across all continents of the world stage, his influence is unmatched, right? His legacy in terms of scripture and the book written about him, the Bible, is the most published book in world history, Right? His cultural legacy is incalculable. And generation after generation, century after century, ruler after ruler, country after country, empire after empire, president after president, pop star after pop star, they all come and go, and yet Jesus' influence endures. This is the point Mark is making. Jesus may seem small, And the ruler is on the world stage much larger. And yet, when you look back through the lens of history, you see it's opposite. 
These rulers come and go, but Jesus is unignorable. Now, you can not like Jesus, you can reject Jesus, but you can't dismiss Jesus as small and discardable. Second, what the religious say about Jesus. What the religious say about Jesus. Now, Jesus is interested in what the crowds and townspeople have to say about him. Not because he's uninformed, but because he wants the disciples to contrast this, right? On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Now, all of these responses are complementary right? They're all like, well, that's, that's really nice of people to say that, right, at first. And, and let me say up front, you can, you can believe all of those things the crowd said about Jesus. You can believe nice things about Jesus, complimentary things about Jesus, and yet not be a Christian at all, not be a Christ follower at all. Let's break down what these things have in common. First, the, the religious people thought that Jesus was a great man, right? Some people thought he was the second coming of John, the desert prophet. Others thought, well, even higher of him. Maybe he's the second coming of Elijah, right? The, the guy who took down the prophets of Baal, the fire thing that, you know, brought somebody's kid back from the dead, rode off on a chariot. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's Elijah. I mean, that seems even higher. Or one of the prophets, maybe an Isaiah or somebody like that. But None of the crowd saw anything higher for Jesus than being a great man. He was a great man, but ultimately just a man. And many who are religious think the same thing about Jesus today, that he is a great man, that he's worthy of emulation, right? That he, he goes on the shelf in the hall of the greats with uh, Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King Jr. and everybody who uh, has won Nobel Prizes over the years. And there's also Jesus, one of the greats, right? Maybe your favorite of the greats, your personal great of the greats. But the question is this, is Jesus somebody you admire as a great man or is he somebody you owe allegiance to as somebody greater than that? You can admire Jesus without it threatening to change your life a whole lot, right? You can admire him and yet essentially live your life the way you want to. Maybe you have a picture of him on the wall. Maybe you have a few books by him. Second, a truth-telling prophet. They thought that Jesus was a truth-telling prophet in the mold of Elijah, in the mold of the Old Testament prophets, in the mold of John. Jesus' teaching was undeniably powerful. He was prophetic, but the people here just believed that maybe like these other prophets, he saw the truth a bit better than others. Maybe God helped him see the truth a bit better than others. And, and maybe some today think the same thing about Jesus, that, that he is a source of truth. He is somebody who sees certain things better than others, that we, that we admire Jesus for his views on the poor or his views on this or that, but maybe not, you know, maybe Jesus' views on, on gender or sexuality or, or whatever are outdated a bit, but, but, but the poor stuff is still great, right? A source of truth. The question is, is, somebody, is Jesus somebody you owe deference to in an area or two? Or is he somebody you owe devotion to as the source of truth? If Jesus only has kind of unique, special truth in a couple areas of your life or a couple areas of the world, then you only owe him sort of allegiance in those couple areas that he sees better than other people, but gives you freedom to find other sources of truth, right? 
You can even sit in church and believe that year after year. You can come and hear the Bible and think, yeah, there is some good stuff in that book, and yet not be a true follower of Jesus. Is he just a truth teller? Third, a miracle worker. Now, they acknowledge that Jesus did all kinds of miracles, like Elijah bringing somebody's a child back from the grave. Jesus could do some amazing things, and many came to Jesus because they wanted physical healing or, or some sort of restoration. Many today still come to Jesus, right? Still tune in, still, still pray desperately in certain ways because they want a, a particular area of their life to find restoration, or, or they, they want, maybe they don't want something bad to happen. They want something good. They want health. They want wealth. They want influence. They're praying certain prayers. They're like, come on, genie Jesus, give us what we want, right? This is the like, I'm at the, you know, the, the end of my rope. Take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel, right? Now, Jesus, we, we sing Jesus, take the wheel, not when things are going well, right? Not when we like the way our life is going, because we're like, I like the way life is going. We sing, take the wheel, Jesus, when we have no other options, the car is about to crash. We're like, take the wheel, Jesus. He's like, well, if you give them to me earlier, maybe, think, you know. But this is what we do, right? We, we, we think of him as a miracle worker. We're, we're at the end of our rope. We reach out to him. Help me, help me. That's what the crowds thought about Jesus. That's what people today turn to Jesus for. But the question is this. Is Jesus somebody you turn to only when you're desperate? Or is he somebody you turn to daily? That you wake up and are like, hey, Jesus, take the wheel. Or is it just, man, the things are going real bad. I have no other options. Let's hit that button. Last, a king, question mark. <laughs> I have a question mark here. A king, maybe they thought he was a king. Maybe some hoped he would be a kind of king for Israel in the mold of the Maccabees who would get Rome out of Jerusalem, who would set up a, a, a government, maybe set up a small Jewish government that, that, that would push out some of the extra influences and then maybe take back that corner of the world from the Roman government. A king that would fulfill a great longing that they'd had for many years to see a politically free religiously free country. And, and many today still think that same way about Jesus. They have something in mind. They have something that needs ruling or saving or restoring, but it's not usually their whole life. It's usually this area, this area of politics, this area of culture, this area of my life, this area of business, right? I want Jesus to come and be a king stronger than I can be and help me in this area, right? It, it's almost as though, not to, not to demean this in, in any way, but but we all have a really strong friend who has a pickup truck. And um, when time comes to move something heavy, we remember our strong friend. And you remember, for me, that's Bobby Wilkins, right? Bobby Wilkins, God bless him, has had to move my wife and I's stuff like five, six, seven times in his, his life. And he's going to get a medal for this in heaven. But you call Bobby, right? When, when things are heavy, you, I can't lift this. I need help. I need a strong friend. You bring him in and he gets that couch down from the third floor of your apartment complex into his truck, right? And in some ways, Jesus is the same way. It's like, okay, I don't have enough strength. I need somebody strong. So Jesus, you come and be the king in this area. I need a stronger person than me in this area to do what I want done. Here's the question, though. Is Jesus somebody you offer tribute to? You say, okay, come help me in this area, and I'll offer two hours on Sunday. You know, how does that sound? Um, is he somebody you offer tribute to? You say, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. Or is he somebody that you offer the totality of your life to? 
Here's the point. You can believe that Jesus is a great man. You can believe that Jesus is a truth teller. You can believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. You can even believe Jesus is a sort of king and not be a Christian at all and entirely miss the point of who Jesus is. And here's what I think ultimately reveals what we think about Jesus. What we offer to Jesus, what we place under his rulership reveals what we truly think about him. Where we truly owe our allegiance reveals everything about what we really think about Jesus. I was listening to a story recently about a revolutionary war hero in the American Revolution, right? There was a critical battle in the American Revolution, and it could go either way. This could kind of be a defining battle in the American Revolution, and this, this one young officer decides, you know what, I'm gonna turn the tide. I'm gonna get out there. I'm gonna lead a charge, and he kind of rallies the troops. He leads a charge into enemy fire. He's wearing, you know, an American uniform, holding, not holding literally, but kind of symbolically holding an American flag, taking on the, the, the enemy, he's wounded, he falls, but they, they win the day, they overcome the enemy, the revolution is saved, and you think, man, this guy seems all in on this cause. But he has no monuments built to him in America. Do you know why? Because his name is Benedict Arnold, Right? This guy who wore the American uniform, who led an American charge in his heart of hearts, deep down, was like, I don't know if I'm all in here. Right? In the heat of battle, sure, we got to win this thing. But at the end of the day, I don't know if I owe my allegiance to this place. And in the same way, we as Christians can do the same thing. We, I don't want to say as Christians. We as religious people can do the same thing. We can wear the Christian uniform. We can speak the right phrases. We can salute the right people and yet not have Jesus truly is king in our lives. So the third question then, what third section then, what the disciples say about Jesus. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. That's what Peter says. And speaking for the disciples, he confesses Jesus as the Christ this title, the Christ, means the anointed one, the promised king, the supernatural king of the Old Testament. Here is the main difference between what Peter is saying about Jesus and what the crowds or the religious people are saying about Jesus. Jesus is not a anything. Jesus not, is not a king, a ruler, a truth teller. He is the everything. He is the king, the prophet, the truth teller, the everything. He is in a different category altogether. It does not do Jesus a compliment to say, out of this category, you're the, clearly the best. He is in another category altogether. I was trying to figure out how to explain this today, and it is tough, but, but here's an illustration. I need you to go with me on this because it's going to take a second or two, okay? So here's the illustration. I grew up wanting to play the electric guitar because I grew up playing classical music. My, we didn't really listen to pop music. I didn't know any electric guitar music. But somewhere around 10, 11, I began to hear the electric guitar on the worship team and on some of the music albums we had that were worship albums. And so I basically listened to classical music and worship guitar. And I was like, there is something there. I like this instrument. I don't know what's going on there, but I like it. So I convinced my parents, let me take electric guitar lessons. 
And so I go to uh, White's Music Box, still on Mesa, I think, and they had these little tiny, like absolutely like, you know, four by whatever rooms. And my electric guitar teacher was there. And so I brought him some of the electric guitar parts I wanted to play. And he was like, okay, sure. And he showed me how to play them. And then he said, I remember him saying, listen to this. And so he clicks play, right, on his CD player, his little boom box. And out of the boom box comes Eric Clapton playing Sunshine of Your Love with the band Cream. And I was like, what is that? What is that? What is that? And then here's the thing. So they're playing the song and then like they get like two minutes into the song and then they just cut loose and Eric Clapton is just soloing. And I'm like, what is he playing? What is that? What is happening? And the guy's like, oh, he's just jamming. And I'm like, what is jamming? Like, what is happening? Like, you don't understand. I was like a classical kid that's like, where? And I'm, my brain is going, where are the notes? What are the notes that he is playing? He's playing new notes, new things. That I'd like. and, and I realized that if somebody had asked me, okay, what's the best electric guitar you've ever heard? I would have been like this one, you know, five-second clip on a worship album, Right? And then sitting there, I realized there is a whole category of electric guitar stuff that I never imagined. And it does not do, right, Eric Clapton, any, a compliment to be like, well, he's the best electric guitar player out of all the worship five-second solos that I know. No, Eric Clapton is in another category, right? This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Peter is confessing, that, that Jesus is not the greatest of a category of great men. He is a new category all together. He is the defining reality of the universe come incarnate and walking in flesh among us. This is what Peter is confessing. First, he confesses that he is the perfect God man, not a great person out of other great men. Kent Hughes says this, Jesus is the name of God's son and Christ is his title. So the words Jesus Christ are not like his first and last name. That confession, Jesus is the Christ, is essentially saying God's son is the anointed one and Messiah. And if you believe that, it changes everything. You do not owe Jesus admiration any longer. You owe him allegiance as your maker and sustainer. Right? Do you see the difference? You feel the difference there? One is somebody that you put on your shelf and say, one is somebody you bow to. Second, he is not just a truth-telling prophet, he is the truth-telling prophet, the truth-teller. Jesus, the maker of all things, is the only one who sees every aspect of reality as it actually is. He is the only one who sees without diminished vision, who can see through everything, and, and, and sees the goal of everything, sees what's wrong with everything, sees the solution for everything. And here's the thing. If you believe this about Jesus, it messes up your life. Because here's the thing. You don't just say, okay, well, Jesus can see these areas better. Well, how do you know that? Well, I think he does. Instead, you say, I don't know if I see anything clearly. I think he does. And you use that to reinterpret all of life. It means that there is no area in your life that Jesus cannot tell you what to do. And you know whether you believe this about Jesus by this question. Does Jesus ever confront you? Do you ever read the Bible or hear the Bible taught and you think, that's true. What I'm doing isn't. I need to change. Because if Jesus never confronts you, 
then you're still the source of truth and you think he's a source of truth. But if Jesus is the source of truth, you put your life under the, on the table and say, okay, tell me. Next, the restoring remaker. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Listen, a miracle worker sort of does sporadic things to make them a bit better than they are. But what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is on a mission to restore the world, right? Jesus, through his healing people, restoring sight, restoring wholeness, casting out demons, is in a sense restoring the world back to the garden in this piece and that piece and this piece and that piece, giving glimpses of a remade world that he is bringing through his kingdom into the world again, Right, this is a king that's not just doing a bit of good here, a bit of good there, doing what he can. This is a king advancing his rule and his kingdom into a place of darkness and brokenness, bringing light and wholeness. And if that's the case, you don't turn to him when you're desperate, like, oh, I need a miracle, Jesus. It means you turn to him daily. It means you turn to him all the time saying, you're doing something. I want to be part of that. And last, he is the king, not just a king, the king. Here's what this would have meant. Uh, it's summarized by Kent Hughes. He says this, Peter is identifying Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, meant the disciples believed that Jesus was the one Israel had been waiting for since the time of David, a superhuman leader who would overthrow Israel's enemies, regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world, make Jerusalem and Palestine the center of the world, and establish the perfect reign of God. Right? This is not just like, okay, I hope you can kind of get us some lower tax situations from the Romans are taxing a lot. Could you do something about that? I'm voting for him. That's not Jesus. Jesus is advancing his rule and reign throughout every corner of the world. That's who Jesus is. That's who Peter is confessing that Jesus is. If you believe that about Jesus, there is no area where you do not bow the knee to Jesus. There is no area of your life that is cut off from Jesus. There is no area in which the one who is preeminent in all creation will not be preeminent in your life. You owe him. We owe him the totality of who we are, not a tribute, not a, well, here's an area Here's two hours on Sunday. Here's a, here's a, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something nice for you, Jesus. I'm going to read my Bible for like 10 minutes a day. Well, that's a big, you know, I could be watching Netflix there, but 10 minutes, here we go. I'm going to give up the early NFL games for you, Jesus, you know? No, we owe the totality of who we are. Look, one more illustration here. I, I'm struggling with illustrations here because this is, it, it, the categorical difference between Jesus and everyone else is incalculable, but in, in light of me being unable to articulate that, I'm going to use Hulk Hogan, okay? So growing up, I had this one family from the church that we, they watched a lot of wrestling, and we would play wrestling, you know, sometimes in their backyard. I think they had like a trampoline or something, and so they would do these wrestling moves, and I didn't know anything about wrestling. I wasn't allowed to watch wrestling. Again, I was listening to classical music. So you think I was going to watch wrestling? My parents are not down for that. And so if somebody had asked me, age 10, who is the best wrestler you know? I would have said Mikey 
Like he's a little bit younger than some of the other kids, but he flies like nobody else. He is athletic like nobody else. He can take anybody else down, even a big kid, even like a fourth grader, fifth grader, boom, going to the mat with Mikey. Mikey wins, right? I'm picking Mikey, right? And, 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 and my category for what a good wrestler was, was that. And so if, somebody, if I told Mikey, hey, if I told somebody, you're the best wrestler I know, it would have been sort of a compliment, right? You're better than Mikey is my reference point here. Well, yesterday, uh, flipping through stuff on streaming, I happened to cross um, something called, and again, you guys got to forgive me if you know wrestling, something called WrestleMania 3, in which this was the concept. Hulk Hogan fights Andre the Giant on live national television, from what I understand. And so I'm watching this match while I'm folding clothes yesterday, and I'm thinking, this will be fine. I'll just put it on. It'll be silly. And, and so I'm watching it. And as it goes, I, I'm like, that guy's huge. But, I mean, so Andre the Giant, like 500-something pounds, 520 pounds. What is he, 7'4"? Something like that, 7'4", 520 pounds. And I'm like, no way. No way. He's going to slap people. He just slaps you and you're dead. Like, and so Hulk's coming, and I realize Hulk Hogan is a big guy. He's like, what, 6'7", six, 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 something like that? And, but they're still, their heads are like this. And I'm like, yeah, no way, man, no way. This guy's going to get slapped around. And again, I'm folding clothes, and I stopped folding clothes, and I just become more and more enraptured. And so as, as and some of it, you know, this wrestling is kind of cheesy, and I'm like, aha, you know. But at one point, here's the deal. One point in the match, like, I'm not kidding, I physically yelled because, if, spoiler alert, this is like 30 years old, so I'm not spoiling anything. Hulk Hogan, I don't even know how we did this. Hulk Hogan picks up Andre the Giant, like grabs him under his leg, under his arm. He picks him up and body slams him into the ground. And I yell, whoa, like, oh my goodness. And in that moment, I realized that at age 10, thinking that Mikey was the best wrestler in the world could not have been more wrong, right? Like, in a world in which this guy exists and like body slams 500-pound men, the best I've got is Mikey, right? No, right? It's a different category altogether. That is what the, the gospel of Mark is saying about Jesus. We do not compliment Jesus saying, well, he's the best of the great men we know. He is a prophet. He is a king. He's doing a great job. No, he is in a different category altogether. He takes on the combined forces of sin and death and Satan and utterly wrecks them. He is the alpha and the omega, the firstborn from the dead who will return to the earth with his eyes flames of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth with the tattoo king of kings and lord of lords on his thigh there is no one like him he is not like anyone else he is not a anything he is the everything and he defines reality and the question brothers and sisters is do we live like it do we live like it Listen to this, Colossians chapter one. This is what it says. I loved on, before the wrestlers come out, they, they go, the tail of the tape. And then they start listing off like Hulk Hogan's 24 inch biceps and his thighs are this big and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, that guy's a beast, right? Listen to the tail of the tape from Colossians chapter one. This is what our king is. He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, listen, everything he might be preeminent. Who do you say Jesus is? If it is anything less than that, you don't see Jesus. And let me just tell you, friend, man, if you're a, not a Christian and you're exploring who Jesus is, this is what it means to be a Christian. One of the early confessions of what it mean to be, meant to be a Christian was to say Jesus is Lord. What that means is that you believe that he's, he's greater than Caesar. He's greater than Herod. He's greater than everything else, greater than any of the ancient gods. He is the one worthy of your allegiance and you will follow him absolutely. That's what it means to be a Christian. But here's the thing. Here's what I hope you've seen. He's worth following. He really is a better king than any other king out there. And in fact, what it means to be a Christian is to say, he's a better king than me of my life. It means to say, man, I'm a sinner. I've turned away from God. I see that now. I'm going to bow the knee. I'm going to declare him as Lord and Savior of my life, and I'm going to turn to follow him. That's what it means. And for us as Christians, maybe you've heard Palm Sunday year after year after year. You've heard Jesus, Hosanna, yay, we clap. Right, But here's the question. Do we live the reality of Jesus as Lord? Are there areas of our life that we're like, not, not that area of Jesus, right? Everybody, look, man, even I do this. I'm hearing a sermon sometimes or reading the Bible sometimes, and I can kind of feel like him beginning to put his finger on an area of my life. And I'm like, whoop, whoop, whoop. You know, like, not that one. Um, that's what we tell my son, who's like a year and a half. He, he like reaches for things. We're like, not that one. He's like, not that one. Right? That's what sometimes I'm telling Jesus. Like, don't you, don't you touch that. Don't you touch my money, Jesus. You know, don't you touch my relationships. Don't you tell me to reconcile with somebody I don't like, Jesus, right? But, like, I'm happy to go to community group. That's cool for me. Does that work for you? I think we're good. No. Do we live the reality? Here's the epilogue to the passage today. It's in John 12. We've already read it, but I want to read it again. Because here's the good news. Here's the insane news. That the king we most desperately need and the king that we never should have had is the king who has come to us. Look, when you read the reality and realize we as sinners have rejected the rule of King Jesus, we've seen the goodness of his rule and said, nah, I'd rather take my rule. I'd rather take sin. I'd rather take my small kingdom than your good kingdom. When you get that reality, you think, Jesus, he should come in utter judgment and justice toward every single one of us as the king, and we should be the guy body slammed into eternity, right? But Jesus comes like this. John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. See, Jesus comes to his people. He doesn't cut his people off. He comes to us. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Right? He doesn't come even exalted as he could. He comes in humility. He comes and rides among us. 
And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The good news of Palm Sunday is the king that we so desperately need, the king that we do not deserve, is the king that comes to us, the greatest of all as the servant of all. The Alpha and the Omega come to die on a cross to restore his people. That is our king. Amen. Would you stand? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning you would expand our view of who Jesus the Christ is. Lord, may we not have any small thoughts of Jesus. May we not do him the lip service of thinking he is a great man among many. Lord, may Jesus grow in our eyes this Palm Sunday to the point that he is unignorable that he defines our reality. He's not just a piece of it. And I pray that those who are seeking Jesus, exploring Jesus today, would see a a clear picture of him and would turn to respond. And I pray that those of us who'd followed Jesus for many years would leave today with a renewed allegiance that when Jesus rides into our lives, we cry Hosanna, we fall down, we bow the knee, and we owe him our allegiance. In Jesus' name, we do pray, amen. Well, church, let's close by singing the